Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I am your host today, Paige Niedringhouse, and I am joined by our panelist, TJ Van Tol. Hey everybody. And our special guest today is Akash Joshi. Akash, can you say hi to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself, why you're famous, what we're going to talk about today? Hey guys, so my name is Akash, and I think the the thing that I might be famous for is talking a lot about myself and the things that I do online. <laughs> and uh, primarily, I work as a React developer, and I try to simplify the complex things that I have learned and try to share that knowledge through my blog and through posts on places like Camp and YouTube. And that's primarily what I try to do. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. That's awesome. So what kind of complex things are you learning about that you're trying to help others get better at? So I think React itself might be a complex thing because we have a lot of web developers here in India. Most of my friends work in web development, but they never seem to go beyond just HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and Bootstrap, and never go into the more productive parts of web development, like being able to build applications at a much faster speed and uh, in a much more scalable way using techni- technologies like React. So that's where I try to position my content, and that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm curious, before we get into some of the topics themselves, what got you into the teaching aspect of this? Was it doing running problems you ran into work that wanted to help into others? Or what made you want to actually blog and talk about some of these things? So actually, I've been writing about things that I've learned. And I guess, I mean, you could call it teaching, but it was a way of noting down the things that I have learned myself. I started, I mean, uh, am I allowed to name brands on here like Hacker Noon and publications like that? Yeah, totally. go for it. Yeah, so I kind of started by reading Hacker Noon and it was kind of, it used to be the highlight of the day for me, looking at posts that people have written. And I saw that a lot of them were people my age who were just learning new things and writing about them. And that's how I myself got started. I I started with learning Node.js and then contributing to a few open source repositories on GitHub. And as I learned new things while learning Node.js, like, for example, how to publish your own NPM library, for example, then I used to write articles on those things. And that's also what ended up, I mean, that's how I also got my first job because people found out about me through my articles. And 
yeah, that's kind of how it's been progressing so far. That's fantastic. I've, I didn't start writing until after I'd actually gotten my first job. So it was a little bit backwards to the way that you went about it. But I've definitely found that learning things at work and then writing about them really helps me, helps it solidify in my mind. And it also helps me when I've forgotten something like an article I wrote two or three years ago, I can go back and search through and find how I did something. So definitely multiple benefits for it. But like, what do you remember which articles it was that made your current or your employer reach out to you? Those were actually articles about React. So I used to reach out to various publications like CSS Tricks, Auth0. And I think publications were more open back a few years ago uh, to new writers and letting them write for them, basically. So that's how I got started with it. Like through Node.js, I ended up learning React while contributing to an open source organization. And then I tried to translate some of those skills to an article and trying to explain how to learn React hooks, which were the big thing back in 2018, like the end of 2018, I think. So yeah, that's how it got started. Well, cool. Well, I know one of the articles you had written is about structuring React projects. So I'm curious, maybe you could walk people through roughly what you cover in that and any advice you have to people, because it's <laughs> structuring React projects is not a small topic, right? There's lots of opinions around that. So I'm, I'm curious what advice you have there. Right, right. Definitely. So uh, structuring React projects is one of the more recent articles that I have written. And I think it got more eyeballs on it, especially, especially because it's such a polarizing topic. Everyone kind of has their own opinion on it. And they're willing to read about someone else's opinion. And how I, so, uh, how I got started it, with it was basically in my first job, the React, the React projects that I was building weren't that complex. So... I didn't really get a chance to get to the depths of React, but in my second job, I had to build UIs which were, uh, which had to scale between various teams. And so kind of while building upon the fundamentals that Next.js has set in for the how a React project should be structured, I kind of added my own uh, sort of small twists on top of that. And that's how I landed up at the project structure that I'm currently using. So should I walk through what that what the project structure is? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. For anybody who hasn't read the article, which we will link to in the show notes. But yeah, it'd be great to hear what your what your take on it is. Yeah. So one of the first things is that to not clutter the root folder of the project. It's helpful to have all of your files sep uh, separated into a specific source folder. And then I mostly talk about how various components of the project should be structured inside of the source folder. So the primary aspect of any uh, web project is the routing. So Next.js has a like good way of maintaining routes through the pages folder. And I talk about that, how you can create top level routes inside of these pages 
and but i don't recommend having any ui components or the code itself stored inside of these pages but having separate component having a separate component folder and then naming these folders according to the page or the set of pages where these components will be used and then storing these components inside these uh, named folder structures and then i talk about other things like uh, data adapters and context stores so data adapters would be adapters like in the adapter project uh, adapter pattern of writing code where uh, these would just be functions which you would call and then the adapter in its own backend would then make any api call or any web socket call or any anything like that and then return the data in whatever format that the original callee expects so i also recommend splitting those splitting the adapters folder into various folders and files according to the structure of the pages and context stores would be uh, generally context stores wouldn't be applicable to simple uh, projects but for more complex projects where generally people end up using a data management library like react uh, uh react context or redux then generally uh, these context folders can hold the context stores for these uh for these set of pages and yeah uh, that's what i recommend there and the rest of the article then just talks about how you can store your styles and public assets so i'm curious just because i haven't done much with nextjs how much does next enforce because you said the pages folder is like a built-in nextjs thing does are there other like special folders with that framework or is some of that just stuff that you made up for your recommendations so there are two things uh, which nextjs enforces which is having a pages folder for storing your routes and having a public folder to store all of the static asset files and the rest of the things were or the rest of the folders were something that i enforced myself or that i made up myself i guess yeah gotcha so it sounds like you're cuz usually i find that most folder structure um there there's almost like two different paths people take either you group your stuff by your files by their type of file like their components their adapters their whatever the case is or you group by feature like you have a folder that this is my i don't know my my navigation or this is my widget this is my menu and it sounds like you prefer just grouping by feature right like components adapters that sort of thing right so if you consider a set of files like catering to a particular feature then yeah i agree that it's kind of similar to grouping by feature but i've heard more i mean i've heard the counter argument that my folder structure actually goes counter to having your having storing having to store your files uh, in terms of features so i guess it depends on how you see how you look at your application i guess yeah and i think there's no like right or wrong way cuz angular is very specific just to give one example of they 
they recommend not having folders like that because they'll tell you to do things like just just no name by by features but that like I, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer because i've seen both get messy when you start to deal at scale because then if you're grouping only by features then in a complex app it's like well which features are within what features and like sometimes you'll have nested features and then you'll need to refactor them out of it and i don't think there's a clean answer to this i but i always find it interesting what people um, come up with for best practices I don't know, Paige, what you do at the Home Depot if you have a folder structure that you've magically solved <laughs> solved this problem with at all. I don't think that we have that at all. But the, the way that my team typically approaches it is we have a folder that is purely for the API calls that we call our service layer. We have one for components, which are the smaller pieces of a React application like buttons, inputs, uh, maybe even something as, as large as a table. And then we, we have containers, which are kind of the, I guess, the pages, quote unquote, that a Next.js project might contain. So it's things like our whole nav bar or the, the main contents of a page. And then we have helper functions that are just used throughout the project, which are usually kind of plain JavaScript functions that might be used to format particular data or kind of transform it. We have hooks, which are the custom hooks that we use throughout different components in the application. But, you know, it, it follows the Java pattern a little bit because most of our backend services are built using Java and Java is very prescriptive in how it wants things done. So we, we lean on that a bit, but React is so unopinionated about it that really however it works for you is probably a pretty decent way to kind of build your application, I think. Yeah, gosh, I think that's why your article gets so much attention yeah, is because no one's, no one's really solved this and people like hearing others' opinions on the issue. Oh, yeah. It's a great opportunity to just see how other people are approaching it. And maybe you can get something good out of it that you can take back to your own app. Totally. So, Akash, I was looking at your website, yeah. which I've also linked to, and I know, noticed that you're not only working full-time, it looks like you've also got a couple of side projects, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about them because you have a link to this thing called Cast Parser and also a link to Product Hunt. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there? Yeah, so Cast Parser is a kind of fintech micro startup that I am running with a friend of mine. So he it's basically his brainchild. And I provide all of the front-end help that he needs in going through that. So cash statements are basically consolidated account statements that get generated for all of the mutual funds that a person holds. So uh, mutual funds are basically a set of stocks that people can buy. And a set of these mutual funds is, gen is stored in that cash statement. And we allow parsing of that statement and generating the data in whatever format that the user needs. So that's where that's what uh, cast parser is about. And on product hunt, I generally try to post about some fun side projects that I have I might have built. Like for example, I used to have a Telegram bot which used to give uh, notifications whenever a website changed. So I used to use this bot to 
track the results page for my university and some other people did some other fun projects with it like tracking the careers page of a of a place of work that they wanted to work at or something like that and so i had to take that bot down because it was too resource intensive but i have made its api open and basically <laughs> the other projects small small projects like this that i have found useful for myself and then i try to put them on product hunt to try to get some other users for it basically yeah that's very nice of you to share that kind of software because that sounds really useful for different things with Sightseer, where you just would you just ping like configurable amount to like ping a site store what was there and like if if it notices like any changes then sends a message yeah yeah that's exactly what it used to do very cool so are you continuing to work on side projects like this or is there anything else that you're doing like i don't know writing courses or kind of blogging more what are you like what are you most focused on right now yeah i think i'm too young to write a course or you know ask payment for someone to teach them something while there are like more smarter people who can who freely provide content for things that people want to learn about so uh, that's what i also try to do earlier i used to make side projects for fun and later on it became that i wanted to try to monetize some of the work that i had done earlier and try to build on that but then i mean when you're trying to monetize something things start to become less fun because you have to worry about things like marketing there might be search engine optimization building landing pages stuff like that so then i kind of uh, slowed that down a little bit and now i'm creating content uh, content that is that would be fun for me to make if it makes sense so when i feel like it i write a blog when i feel like it i try to record a youtube video now editing a youtube video is not fun <laughs> but <laughs> recording is can be fun sometimes i can so, totally yeah. relate to that uh, that's what i do <laughs> Nice. I I can definitely relate to that. Not the whole monetizing thing, but the the second something goes from being just kind of like a hobby project to an I must do this or get this to work, it's it's usually a lot less fun that way. Yeah, having lots of users is is like a double-edged okay. sword. It's cool, but at the same time then people have demands, especially if they're paying money, then they have they have a lot more demands. <laughs> and a lot more sway over what you'll actually do for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. 
So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at reactroundup.com slash Raygun. Well, that's cool. So what kind of day-to-day things do you get to use for your work with your, your company that you work for? Like what kind of tech stack and tools? So it might sound boring to some people that I get to work with React a lot, but it's actually really fun for me because uh, JavaScript is how I got started. And React for me is the best expression of JavaScript and especially via TypeScript where I can kind of automate away most of my workflow. And then it's fun to think about how I can build something with the minimum amount of lines of code by trying to create the optimum function which can be reused everywhere or basically reduce the amount of work that I would have to do to build something. So yeah, mostly I do get to work with React and TypeScript. And I hope to learn Rust soon. I've heard a lot of people who seem to be JavaScript developers kind of gravitating towards Rust. What What's tr- kind of drawing you towards it? So I especially like the functional programming paradigms inside of JavaScript, and I try to use them as much as possible. So when I look at Rust, I, like most university students, have, of course, learned C and C++. And nobody, like, after playing with modern programming languages, going back to that is not fun. But Rust is something different because it, even though it has some (laughs) complex programming paradigms, like, it quite strictly defines the life cycles of a variable and you have to deal with things like borrowing memory values between variables. It's still fun because the kind of strictness that it applies is eventually what results in better better code being written. But of course, I don't speak this from my experience. This is just from things I've read online. But a more experienced trust developer would probably uh, give the, be able to give this answer better. But yeah, that was my opinion on this. It's funny, Paige, you're right. I I feel like Rust is the cool thing for JavaScript developers to do. (laughs) I feel like we missed the memo here at some point because I haven't gotten into Rust at all. But I also think like it's funny that a lot of JavaScript tooling is now starting. There's like some Rust-based tools that are supposedly faster that are starting to become more popular. So it's going to be interesting to see how that changes over time. Maybe I'll have to learn it too. (laughs) I know. I I, I hear this kind of stuff pretty regularly. It's like Rust, Go. But I guess my problem is a time management one where I I use Java and I use React mostly for my job. And so that's what most of my time goes towards is those two programming languages. I, I've used Python a little bit. I'd like to learn Go, I think, because I've heard really good things about it. But it's there's just so many languages and so little time to learn them and then apply them, I guess, is the main thing. Yeah, and I think, like at least for me, I have to have a reason to do it, right? Like, if I have a project in mind, and Akash, like, it's interesting hearing some of your stories, too, because 
your like a lot of these side projects came out of actual problems you had or things that you you wanted to do, which is always interesting to see because at least for me, and I don't know about you too, but I can't just sit down and say like, well, I'm going to learn Erlang today, right? <laughs> like if I do that, like there's no amount of focus in the world that's going to get yeah. me to, to, to learn Erlang. But if I had like some problem that I needed to solve in my life or for my job, then like, okay, sure. Like that gives my brain a reason to sit down and focus and do it. Absolutely. I tried that with Haskell one time because a programmer who I work with had a senior developer, he had recommended it as a good way to kind of get your feet wet with functional programming. And I made it through, I don't know, maybe three, two or three chapters of a, a getting started with Haskell book and then just put it down and never picked it back up again. So yeah, you definitely have to have something that you're trying to solve, not just trying to learn for the fun of it, I think. Actually, Akash, I'm curious because you said that you had kind of liked the functional style of programming. And I'm curious, does that come from like work experience or school? Because I I say this as someone that functional has never totally clicked for me. And maybe like, because like Paige, I came from a Java background and Java is very much not, I mean, there's, you can kind of do some functional things, but it's very much not a functional language really. So I struggle to get my brain to work that way. So I'm curious why... Like, what made you interested in that approach? Yeah, so I didn't pick up uh, functional programming in university because most of the university classes are based on object-oriented programming. But where I initially started picking up functional programming was, again, when I was reading Hacker Noon back then. And there were a lot of articles written about things like I guess monads, which nobody really understands. But then there were things about like topics like composability of functions and immutability. So immutability and pure functions, those are the two things which really got me into functional programming. Because then I could write code which wasn't surprising, kind of. So in C, you end up writing code which you don't understand what it does. Like, at least I used to because I couldn't write C well, I guess. <laughs> but uh, with functional programming, I could uh, write JavaScript, which even if I come back to later, I could still understand what it does, basically. And I that's also kind of how I got into open source because I see that open source repositories, which are written in a more functional way are generally more readable because everything has its own, like everything is separated into its own concern, kind of. Yes, I'm I'm not sure of the exact terminology here. That makes sense. Yeah, I think think we get it kind of the separation of concerns is what you're, and the encapsulation, I guess. Right. But I guess, I mean, these two terms are generally used for object-oriented programming too. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, I feel like functional programming is like a cult that I haven't gotten an invite into because everybody, like I, they, I feel like once you've drank the functional Kool-Aid, like you can't stop talking about it and you you start recommending Haskell to your coworkers and like you like all this stuff. And I still like, I still like see, I've heard the term monad literally hundreds of times right and if you ask me right now to explain to you what a monad is i couldn't even try like i i will not nothing nothing, <laughs> nothing will come out interesting so it's actually i find it quite interesting that like just from some articles that 
you were able to pick up on that because it's, at least to me, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, like currying is something that I know is it's very big and functional. And I, I can understand the general idea of it, but then actually trying to put that into practice in my code somewhere is a very large challenge to me still. <laughs> yep, exactly. But it, it's definitely super powerful yeah. when you know what you're doing. I've seen some really just great great code written from it but man the people who know how to do that and can visualize it ahead of time hats off to you that's a great skill to have for sure so Akash, another thing you've got you have on your github yeah, i would definitely not put myself into the like leagues of great functional programmers because <laughs> a monad is something which i can still not explain <laughs> and uh, currying is something i generally don't use myself but just with immutability and writing pure functions, which is like functions which only have one use case and don't affect any values outside of the function except for the ones which were provided as input to it. I mean, uh, just by these two concepts, you can go pretty far in functional programming is what I feel. Very cool. But there's another project on your GitHub that I wanted to, to bring up is you have this project called Functions Without Borders. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what this is and what you're trying to solve with this this project. Yeah. So Functions Without Borders was built to, again, solve a problem that I had. I uh, basically hate writing server-side interfaces because a lot of time <laughs> gets spent in doing that. Like whenever I have to write something, I have to write uh, 10 HTTP API what is it called if I write it on the server side? Like an end, end point or... Yeah, I yeah. I have to write a lot. I, I end up having to write a lot of endpoints and then a lot of getters on the client side. So what this library does is it kind of abstracts away everything. And it also mixes in a lot of TypeScript to basically make a server side API calls fail like a fun native function call on the client side. So it allows you to use the same TypeScript types between the client and the server. So while defining your server, if you're using a set of types, then you can pass the same types to the client side also. And then basically you can call those functions on the client as if they were they were written on the client itself. But actually, the library makes a WebSocket call and then gets the data from the server. Very cool. So it's like your own version of server-side rendering. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so then where do you deploy the, the server code to? Is it just like any, um, like, is it like a Lambda situation? Or wh where where would the server code end up? I don't think i mean i haven't tried deploying it to any serverless library yet but it's mostly about a server full situation where you might have a server constantly running and then the client can be anything it can be a browser or it can be another server or whatever wherever you want to run it on basically very cool so akash is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you think that you'd like to talk about I don't think so. I've covered uh, mostly everything that I'm passionate about. I'm 
uh, what I like to learn and talk about, I guess. Yeah. Very cool. So if people would like to get in touch with you, what are the best ways? They can reach out to me on Twitter at The Writing Dev. They can check out my blog at thewriting.dev where they can subscribe to my blog. And if they reply to any of the emails, it uh, the reply actually reaches to me directly. Very, very cool. Awesome. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So I think this is the point in the show where we're going to move into picks and we'll share things that we've been using that we're fans of things. It could be a site that you found, a product that you like, basically a show you've watched that you've enjoyed. Um, so TJ, would you like to start us off this week? I can start us off. Yeah. So my pick for this week is going to be kombucha. I don't know, Paige, Akash, have you, have you had kombucha before? Do you get the reference? I have not tried it, but I've seen it at the grocery store. Yes. Okay, so I had never tried it in my life. I didn't know it's it was a fermented thing. tea, right? Yeah, fermented tea, uh, and which I couldn't totally explain exactly what it is. So I'm glad you're, you know more about it than I do, apparently. But <laughs> the I had heard of it before, and a coffee shop near me had it. So I was like, what the heck let's let's try it and it was I, I think it started a new uh obsession of mine because I just went to the store and bought a whole bunch of it because it's quite good it's it's uh since it's tea based it's caffeinated but it's got you know just a little bit of caffeine right so I've I've had a bit of a coffee problem lately where working from home the coffee consumption was getting a little out of control and I've really enjoyed kombucha the place near me has it in a a lot of different flavors. So if you haven't tried it before, Paige, you might want to just get some from the grocery store just to say you've, say you've done it. <laughs> I will definitely give that a try now that I, I know somebody who is a fan of it. Is there a particular flavor that you've liked? I like the fruit-based ones. Akash, I don't know if you have any. Let me see if I can dig up exactly which one I've had. Akash, is kombucha popular in India around you? Not really. I had kind of found it in a novelty Japanese store. So, I mean, it's a bit expensive, but it's really tasty. At least I think the taste is quite different from regular tea. So it's fun to drink. Yeah. So I've had some that are like cherry based. Interestingly, that was, that was quite good. And like a, like a cranberry orange one as well that I like. So the, the fruity ones I thought worked really well. So oh. that's, that's my pick. Nice. I like it. I will go next, TJ. You've inspired me with your choice of kombucha. I will choose a loose leaf Earl Grey tea that I recently found. And I've been drinking just typical tea bags of Earl Grey probably about the past year or so. My husband has been doing it since he was a kid. Um, and since I've been working from home also, and we work from home together, we will now have tea at about three o'clock and take a, a quick break and just kind of check in and see how the other one's doing. But recently we've we've upgraded from the tea bags to this loose leaf version from Harney and Sons. And wow, what a difference. <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely got a lot of extra flavor in it. 
it's a little bit more involved because you can't just dunk the bag in. You have to have a little tea strainer that you put in your cup, but I think it's really worth it. It's been really, really enjoyable. So that's what I would recommend today if we're going along the eating and drinking route. Um, <laughs> it's available on Amazon. It's not too, too expensive. And you can certainly get a, a pretty decent amount of it for the price. So I'm going to go with Harney and Sons Earl Grey Tea. And Akash, do you have anything that you'd like to share? Yeah, I don't have anything as especially on the eating and drinking side since <laughs> the lockdown has stopped all of the like random things that I used to eat. But uh, what I would recommend is a label mic. So I'm using one right now and it dramatically improves the audio quality that I have in Zoom calls and video calls or, you know, while just recording audio on for for my YouTube channel or anywhere else. So yeah, I would recommend having a label mic as a starter kit to for a YouTube channel, I guess. Fantastic. That's always good. I think people are always looking for good microphones, good cameras, good, good all that stuff, especially since our lives are very video driven nowadays. <laughs> very cool. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And we will have all of your links where people can reach you, see some of your articles, check out your website as well. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really fun to talk to you. Thank you, guys. It's been fun talking with you also. Excellent. So we will see you next time on the React Roundup Show. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.